0: Hello, it's Ritika, Katie and Nettie and you're listening to the, the Cortex, Cortex Cast. Cast. My name is Nettie and in this episode of Cortex Cast, I'll be interviewing Dr. Julia Harris, whose research focuses on one of biology's biggest mysteries, which is why do brains need to sleep. Dr. Harris is an Oxford University alumni having completed her PhD in neuroscience at UCL and recently opened her new lab at the Salisbury's Welcome Centre in London, where she'll be investigating how the energetic and computational requirements of the brain are balanced during sleep to allow us to wake up each morning with brains that are increasingly optimised for our environment. So, I wanted to actually say congratulations for starting and opening up your new lab. Thank you. What can we look forward to from Harris's lab? In the near future, I hope that we'll be able
1: to predict what an individual neuron is going to do during sleep from knowing what it did during wake.
0: Today, I was fortunate enough to have a quick tour of your lab, and I saw a really cool Um, experimental setups and it seems like there's a lot of creative aspects in terms of building the experiment do you mind just going into brief detail of what you're currently researching
1: there's something that is such a great aspect of neurophysiology that I can tell in our tour that you were excited by it as well which is yeah there's, there's a really like creative almost arts and crafts aspect to this type of neuroscience And that comes with really like the worlds that we want to build for our animals. So you could be creating like a virtual visual environment or a virtual auditory environment or at the moment what I've been creating is like a virtual olfactory environment. And you are always trying to interrogate behavior in a new way, which means thinking really, really carefully about the experimental setup and design and almost always creating something new like a maze with an interesting new aspect you have to be really thoughtful as well because you cannot instruct your animals to do what you want you have to like actually think really carefully like I want just to be this behavior, but how am I going to get my mouse to a place where that's what the mouse will do to really reveal something? So that's that's a really big and creative part of it and involves a lot of hands-on building from electronics to software and programming to actually, you know, super gluing stuff <laughs> together. So um, what I have been working on recently, which I have started in Andreas Schaefer's lab in the Crick, which is where I am now, and will be continuing and expanding on in my new lab, is looking at how specific populations of neurons change as a function of sleep. So, for instance, at the moment, in collaboration with Mihai Kolo in Andreas's lab, we created an olfactory stimulus set. And we are recording from neurons in the piriform cortex, which is like the primary visual cortex of smell. So it's it's uh, one of the first places that odors are processed in the brain. And we use a cutting-edge neurophysiology technique called Neuropixels, which uh, allows us to extracellularly record from hundreds of neurons at once. So we're recording from hundreds of neurons in the piriform cortex as the animals smell new odors. And then we can track those same neurons into a period of sleep and then into a subsequent period of wake and get an understanding of, on a neuron-by-neuron basis, what each neuron is doing in these different arousal states. And can we predict what type of sleep activity one neuron will have based on its wake activity? And then given what type of sleep activity that neuron participated in, what does that mean for that? neurons activity when the mouse wakes up again and sees the same stimuli or smells the same stimuli. We can look at this on a single neuron level or on a population level and this is going to allow us to get at some questions that were not easily accessible before we could track many individual neurons at once.
0: I guess when you are looking at neuronal activity in sleep and wake state, some neurons differ in that they are excitatory and inhibitory. Mm -hmm. Do you mind just giving a brief overview?
1: Well, I mean, this is a great question. So, of course, yeah, there are lots of different types of neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. Excitatory, the main class of those being um, glutamatergic neurons, and also the main class of inhibitory neurons, GABAergic these tend to be intermingled within the same area. And then you have other areas of the brain that have high proportions of different types of neurons, so like dopaminergic neurons, serotonergic neurons, for instance. We're increasingly starting to understand as a field that these different populations might be behaving quite differently in waking sleep. So For instance, one thing that I found recently is that dopamine neurons in the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, actually become quite quiet during non-REM sleep, and then they become quite active during REM sleep. It was a little bit surprising that the GABAergic neurons in the same area behaved similarly, so they also became quite quiet during non-REM sleep and active during REM sleep. This Mm -hmm. is almost not what you would expect because during wake, we know that this GABAergic population normally inhibit the dopaminergic population. But you could also think it's exactly what you would expect because if the level of one increases then the level of the other should compensate. The technique that we were using to study this is called in vivo photometry and it only allowed us to look at the activity of the whole dopaminergic or GABAergic population You would need a higher temporal specificity and ideally to be able to look at both groups of neurons within the same mouse to know whether they were antagonizing each other in a similar way during wake. But it kind of leads towards your point of, yes, what are these different populations of neurons doing during sleep versus wake? And do they tend to behave similarly? There is a lot to explore there. So first, maybe we just want to map out like all of the different classes of neurons that we know expressing different types of transmitters in different brain regions. What are their average activities across different stages of wake and sleep? But more specifically, can we understand whether the way they interact with each other is
0: different during
1: wake versus sleep?
0: How did you uh, go about planning um, some of the experiments that you're currently working on?
1: Iterative refinement. So, you know, I started with a question. Actually, the first way I was thinking about trying to address this idea, do different neurons that are active during different aspects of awake behaviour participate in different aspects of sleep activity my idea was to in vivo patch clamp those neurons, um, which that that was my hope. I thought that would be a really great thing to do because then you would be able to see a sub-threshold. So before you get to the output spike of the neuron, you would then be clearly able to see whether the synaptic inputs to that neuron changed as a function of which pattern of sleep. But in vivo patch camping is really difficult, low yield, and it's hard to record from a cell for long enough to do this kind of experiment. I think it will still be really instructive in the future when we have a better idea of what we're looking for and we can target the patching better. But yes, then I was near Andreas Schaeffer's lab at the time and um, started talking to him and his lab and Mihai for instance and we talked about this new neurotechnology that Mihai and others in the lab had been developing a way of recording extracellularly from hundreds or thousands of neurons at once and this basically created a new avenue for how to address these questions. So no, we can't look at the sub-threshold synaptic input activity of individual neurons, but if we can look at hundreds of neurons at once, then we're much more likely to be able to understand what different populations are doing from wake to sleep. So kind of moved into this new way of addressing this question, and I joined Andreas Schaefer's lab. Then you start to think, okay, so what brain area should we do this in? Because I work in the olfactory system now. This is the system that Andreas Schaeffer's lab works in. But it's not really because I joined Andreas's lab that I work in the olfactory system. It's because the olfactory system is very accessible and has lots of advantages for my particular question mm-hmm. that I work in this system. Similarly for Andreas, he's interested in information coding. It's a system that... I'm provides a lot of advantages so yeah then you think okay uh which part of the olfactory system and therefore which type of olfactory stimuli do we need to use and how exactly should we design the stimuli and how long should each odor pulse be and how should we present it to the mouse and what kind of training and habituation should each mouse go through before we do the actual experiment and so you just slowly build up you start for me like start with a big question Mm -hmm. and then slowly narrow down like what's the technique uh, what's the best part of the brain? Maybe you start with like a part of the brain you're interested in, but not for me. For me, I think that sleep is doing different interesting things throughout the brain. Mm-hmm. So we may as well start somewhere where we think we understand the circuitry, we think we understand the inputs, we think we understand how to control the environment. Um, any principles that we discover in the olfactory system, we can see if they're with he- upheld in other sensory regions But when we move on to look at another part of the brain, we'll go through a similar process. What's the right behaviour to study here? What what exactly do we expect to be changing in the neural network here? How can we design a task that is likely to create um, the kind of changes that we will be able to pick up with our technique? And you just kind of hone in and hone in until you are sure that you have the right experiment for your question.
0: In your... Experimental design process. I'm assuming that you worked with also engineers and you know people from different fields to kind of like help you move forward in a sense. When did you know? Oh, okay. Maybe I should approach this person who might have different insight and help me to like make this exp- you know design better. So we depend
1: hugely on the amazing teams um, at the Crick right now and at and the SWC where my lab is starting. They have similar teams um, that. Um, work with uh, mechanical engineering. So with uh, in collaboration with them, you can design like the physical aspects of the setup that you need. So for us, it was an effort to create a way of delivering odors that wasn't leaky, that didn't contaminate each other. Um, and this involved like a lot of tweaking, making different holders, testing them, choosing the way that each odour vessel is closed and releases its odour and then also we worked with the more computer engineering group to once we designed the electrical circuits that we needed they helped us well design more efficient (laughs) electrical circuits and print them so that we weren't having to solder everything ourselves and with the help of these teams like without the help of these teams (laughs) we would we would not be where we are.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Um so did you have any Eureka moments um in this in your career path?
1: Not in terms of discovery. Mm -hmm. I hope that I will. (laughs) Um but maybe in terms of my thinking. My PhD, although I told you at the beginning that I have always been interested in studying sleep, um, and that that kind of question actually got me into neuroscience in the first place. But when I started my PhD, there were very few labs in the UK studying sleep and certainly not studying sleep on a kind of neurophysiology level. So not, not able to look, you know, it was more cognitive uh, research looking at humans. And I, I did note that I wanted to look uh, more at single cells and networks of cells. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like changed my, you know, I, I just forgot about sleep a little bit and followed what I was interested in. And I got really interested in how um, energy is used by neurons and whether the design of neurons and neural networks is prioritizing information transfer mm-hmm. versus energy use. Or just how is the brain organized such that it can do these very, very complex tasks Uh, that we know the human brain can do using Mm much, 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 much less energy than your typical computer. So the brain is obviously a very efficient computational device, and and I got interested in the biology of how this works. And then towards the end of my PhD, I became aware of something called the shy hypothesis, which is a synaptic homeostasis hypothesis of sleep. Julia Tononi's lab in the States was uh, providing or producing some evidence that neurons tend to downscale their synaptic strength during sleep and in my PhD I'd done a lot of work looking at how much energy synapses use and it's a lot it's the most energy consuming process in the brain and it's also like the computational unit of the brain like it's it's how neurons uh, upregulate or downregulate their communication with other neurons in the network so if all of these synapses are downscaled during sleep then this is a great energy saving for the brain but at the time the formulation of that hypothesis was that they would all be downscaled by the same amount and so relative strengths would be maintained and so you would only forget things that you know had very low synaptic representation weak synapses in the first place um but I started to, to wonder, could sleep be managing both the energy use of the brain's neurons and components at the same time as effectively managing its information processing? So like the more traditional way that we think about sleep consolidating memory. And if it was doing both, it would probably be happening at the level of the synapse. You know, memories are altered at the level of the synapse classically the biological substrate for memory. Energy is used in the brain primarily at the synapse. So let's look at sleep's effect on synapses and connections between neurons. And for me, I suppose that was a bit of a, a not a eureka, but that's, that's how I now think about sleep as an opportunity to reorganize brain networks but my question is how is it doing this in in a strategic way because our feeling when we wake up in the morning is is really that we're like uh, more prepared (laughs) for the environment than we were the day before and this happens progressively and iteratively throughout everybody's life so that every single day that you wake up you should be bit more prepared for the environment than the night before but also like much more prepared than last week and so sleep I think can really be part of this process yes we learn during the day but also what changes during the night to make sure our brains remain and increase their efficiency um, at interacting with the world.
0: That's brilliant and really fascinating Um, so my next question is very different almost a change of topic And that is, um, what does a day in your life look like as a neuroscientist?
1: So I have um, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. So um, my mornings start quite early, quite chaotic. Um, Then after I get them off, I'll uh, get into the lab, have a cup of coffee, check my emails, try to keep up with any recent literature that's relevant to, to my research and at the moment I'm still doing all of my own experiments so there'll be some lab work to do it might be like soldering my own electrodes for the EEG and ECOG for the mice or doing a day of surgeries or doing preparation for the experimental days like habituating my mice or doing the actual experiment Mm -hmm. um And then usually there'll be lab meetings or a seminar to go to and maybe some following up with some old papers, like, I don't know, today I had some revisions back that I'm working on and yeah, then going home. (laughs) Nice. What would you consider to be like the best way to get into science? increasingly in in the in the field of neuroscience that i am in and the type of data that we are able to collect now from hundreds of neurons thousands mm-hmm. of neurons at once over long time scales with really high temporal resolution this is big data and the way that neuroscience is moving or systems neuroscience the kind of neuroscience that i'm interested in really really good skill to have some advanced mathematical and programming abilities. So if you start off with these concepts already familiar to you, um, because in your undergrad you've studied physics or maths and are really good at coding, then that puts you at a great advantage. Um, Of course the
0: biology is, is, is still important. In today's episode Julia has talked about some of her previous work and her future ambition to understand what individual neurons do during sleep after experiences during wakefulness. She has discussed how she creatively plans and sets up experiments through iterative refinement to hone in on the most interesting questions, and how she employs some of the latest techniques to observe neural activity in a relatively easy access brain region, the piriform cortex while mice interact with the olfactory environment. We wish her all the best with setting up her new lab in the Sainsbury Welcome Centre this year, and in studying how the brain better prepares us for the world with each and every sleep. Thanks for listening in on our conversation today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please keep an eye on our social media to find our next one.